How's it going, everybody? It is 4.40 p.m. Thursday, November the 7th, 2019. And it's time for this week's edition of uh, Homeward Path. It's time to head home. So this is the show by me. My name is Adam. I'm a husband, a father of three, uh, work a full-time job. Somehow, some way, we still find a way to try our best and make at least semi-competitive magic work. Whether you're uh, a grinder, uh, F&M hero, you know, 1K traveler, whatever, you know, magic is a tough game. It's even harder to do when you don't have time to prepare for it properly. It's even harder when you don't have the cash to get the stuff you need. So I, I, I'm with you. I empathize. And that is what the show is about. The struggle of playing magic on a budget. Time, financial, otherwise. So while we were away this week, we got our first band list announcement for Pioneer. And I mean, it's exactly what we expected to a degree. There was... One card I was kind of hoping to see, but it wasn't anything... It's not anything that's going to warp the format right away, probably. Maybe. And so I'm going to touch on that a little bit before I dive into our main topic, which is going to be about building decks in a format where something is oppressive, where something is so powerful that it locks out other strategies, or it seems to lock out other strategies, where something is so omnipresent, where something is so ubiquitous that it seems like sheer insanity to play anything else. That's what I want to talk about this week. But you know who's never going to oppress you, who's never going to invalidate your wants and dreams is our sponsor at inkgaming.com. Use the promo code CCMTG10 at checkout, get 10% off your order, and deck out your playing spaces so you can never be, your sense of style can never be oppressed again. And while you're at it, while you're surfing the web, head over to the network at constructedcriticism.com. They'll make sure you never get oppressed from a play skill angle ever again. The content on the network is fantastic. Just go check it out. I mean, I could sit here and do a plug for days. I'm not going to do that. It's way, it, it, it's, the, the content speaks for itself. Go check it out. And if you want to, you know, help free me from the chains of financial oppression, uh, you can head over to patreon.com slash homerpathmtg and uh, become a patron of the show. Uh, patrons get access to having their decks featured on Riding in Cars with Cards. Once I figure out how in the world I'm going to light that in the post-daylight savings time era. Uh, it was a logistical issue I did not consider when I started that show. <laughs> So I may ha- I'm going to have to change up my recording schedule for that so that I can actually have daylight. Uh, and there will be other benefits down the line. So without further ado, let's dive in. While we were away, we got our first band list announcement for Pioneer. And it was a doozy. Uh, the top two decks are dead. Full stop. Dead. Not happening anymore. Go on about your business. Uh, if you were worried about Mono Green Devotion and Four Color Sahili, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Felidar Guardian, banned. Leyland of Abundance, banned. A little more questionable, Oath of Nyssa, banned. I get it, <clears throat> but, you know, that was a card I was kind of excited to play with again, honestly. Even without considering the Blink shenanigans with the Felidar Guardian and... Without considering things like weird interactions like Constellation or adding green for Devotion while sitting on the battlefield as a card selection spell, which is kind of a weird thing. Uh, 
Oathness is just a really powerful selection tool, and that's why they said it had to be banned. It was one of those, it was the type of card that was so good at what it did, it was going to squeeze out room for other similar cards, cards like Adventurous Impulse, cards like uh, Communal Dinosaurs, cards like uh, Incubation Incongruity. So I can kind of understand where they're coming from in that, at that perspective. As for Felidor Guardian, yeah, that card needed to go. If Splinter Twin is too powerful for modern, Sahili Felidor is too powerful for uh, Pioneer. It requires very specific sideboard answers. Uh, you have to play cards like Rending Volley or Fry or uh, Rampaging Ferocidon, Authority of the Console, Stalia, Heretic Athar, and you can still just lose even with access to all of that because that deck was also playing Teferi Time Raveler. So just getting the, the threat of dying to infinite one force while you're otherwise playing a fair and interesting game of magic. Getting that out of the format something I can get behind. As for Leyline of Abundance, good riddance to absolute ridiculous rubbish. <laughs> Excuse me. Leyline of Abundance plus Nykthos Shrine to Nyx is just a lot too strong. I, I can't even say it's a little too strong. It's a lot too strong. The fact that we hadn't uh, we hadn't approached this deck in modern is a little bit beyond me. I mean, yes, it is the Blood Moon format. Yes, it is a format where you can get locked out of the ability to do what your deck does. But at that point, you can still just play a bunch of creatures. You play a lot of forests. You're not even punished as hard as Tron is against Blood Moon. Like, that's what's so baffling about the fact that we've never tried this in modern. And the fact that you can, with your absolute nut draw, have access to 11 mana at the in, at, in the middle of your second turn, potentially hard casting an Ulamog the Ceaseless Hunger is a little bit ridiculous. Reminded me a lot of 12 post in, mo in Modern when it first came out. So not having that in the format's a good thing because it opens up room for other potential big mana strategies that aren't just absolutely, completely, and utterly busted in half. It means the, the ramp decks play a little bit more fair. Or play Aetherworks Marvel, and we probably have to have this discussion again down the line. Anyway, that's my thoughts on the banning. I'm on board with all of them, at least to a degree. Like, again, I wanted to play Oath of Nyssa, but for the good of the format, I think I'll let that one slide. So let's dive into our main topic this week. This is the idea of building decks in a format that is being oppressed, that is actively under the heel under the boot of something that is too powerful and it's something again i feel thanks to lots and lots of experience in the area that i'm uniquely qualified to uh discuss <clears throat> for those of you who don't know let's let's go on over the laundry list of oppressive decks that i've played during the the reign of terror of uh the first one was fairies the second one was uh john cascade the third one was Callblade. And then when I came back to play Standard again, it was Bant Company. And then it was uh, Blue White Flash and Green Red Marvel. And then it was Four Color Sahili. And then it was Teamer Marvel. And then it was Teamer Energy. And then it was Red Black Chain Whirler. And then it was. <laughs> we just came to. We seem to go through this a lot. Anyway, so there have been a lot of examples throughout just my personal history with magic where a deck was just so good at what it did or so good at so many different things that it created a warping effect around it in the metagame 
and even an even better historical example is Affinity, which happened right before I started playing Magic. So I got to hear about it from the people who were who I learned from as we as we you know as I learned. And to put it mildly, when a deck is oppressive, there's a difference between a deck like uh for you know a deck like Tamer Energy or a deck like uh Oh, I'm trying to think. A deck like Jund. There's a difference between decks like that as oppressors versus decks like Callblade, like Fairies, like... Uh, oh, words are failing me here. Anyway, there's, there's a difference between those kinds of decks and decks like what we're dealing with now in Standard, like the Oko decks, like the food decks. Because Jund, the Teamer Energy, Jund... They were just decks that squeezed out options because what they had access to was so flexible. It gave them so many different lines, so many different things to do. That's different than a deck like Simic Food that is pretty linear in its approach, but is very, very powerful. It actively invalidates entire archetypes. So... The process of building in a format with a deck like this legal often feels like an uphill, like, like riding a bicycle uphill in an ice storm on a pair of rubber bands. Like it's, it feels miserable sometimes. It feels like bringing a pocket knife to a jousting tournament. Like that's what it's, that's what it feels like. There's, there's no sugarcoating this. Building new decks in a format that's being oppressed by a, a card, a strategy, whatever, that is either so ubiquitous that you can't ignore it, or it's just so powerful that you can't hope to beat it reliably, it's a slog. And I wanted to, I wanted to preface everything else I'm going to say with that. You can do absolutely everything right and still lose because the cards and decks are just so powerful. So the first step in building in that format is to identify what you got to beat, and that's deck A. Deck A is the oppressor. It's the thing that's, that's keeping everybody down. And you got to ask yourself some questions about why this deck is so good. Not just that it's so good. Why is this deck so good? The first question you got to ask, what are the busted cards? What, you know, what is it that makes the deck itself powerful? For fairies, it was the fact that you were a Drago control deck that was also good in the control mirror. Because you had the, the curve of Thoughtseize, Bitter Blossom, uh, Scion of Una, Miss My Click. You know, you could, you could force the control player to play on their own turn, play into open mana, and punish them for it. Under, in, in Jund, it was... The fact that you largely invalidated the other aggro, you you invalidated the aggro decks and most of the other mid range decks, and the control decks just didn't have the right tools to combat it. A little bit different than some of the other stuff we got going on now. Uh, John's dominance was largely due to a lack of a lack of answers, more so than it was the deck itself being particularly overpowered. That's why nothing ended up getting banned. Once the, once the other decks got better answers, John kind of relegated toward the average. Uh, for Cobblade, it invalidated the entire mid-range archetype. 
because you could do the, the same things the mid-range decks were doing against aggro after sideboard, but your main deck also dominated your control matchup because your two drops dominated in the kinds of card advantage it would give. And then right now we have, we have Oko in standard. I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that deck's fine, it's healthy. No. The, the blue-green X-Food decks are dominant. They're oppressive. They squeeze out room for any other mid-range deck to exist. And the card Oko Thief of Crowns squeezes out any creature that doesn't give you all of its value on entering the battlefield. If you are relying on your if you are relying on untapping with the creature, Oko literally cuts off your entire strategy at the legs. Whether it's untapping with the size of a creature or untapping with the text box of a creature, Oko invalidates that. That's why the food deck is oppressive. It's also a mid-range deck, so it does a good job of invalidating aggro in the format. The curve of turn one goose, turn two Oko, turn three wicked wolf, it's just a little bit too strong for the aggro decks to overcome. The, the life gain from the food helps cut off the red deck at the knees. The, the Wicked Wolf being so valuable against a card like Runaway Steamkin. Uh, Oko itself turning off a lot of the creatures that you would like to play in your aggro decks that would you know get pumped, get big, and get in there. You know, basically what Oko says is your creatures have to have haste or they have to have enter the battlefield abilities. Otherwise, you're not getting any value out of them unless it's as 3-3 elves. You, know, you either have to have so many of them that you overrun him, or you have to have enter the battlefield abilities or haste. Because you're only getting to use them once. <laughs> so, deck A is, you know, you, you also have to identify if there's any potential flaws. Any, any fundamental exploitative property for them. For example, the, the, oh Lord, I'm drawing a blank. The fairies deck could be beaten by a really strong, could be beaten by a fast draw. So one of the commonly played, the commonly played options to beat up on fairies was to just play mono red. You know, Demigod of Revenge was a heck of a magic card against the deck that wanted to play counter spells. Uh, especially against an opponent who didn't understand how triggers worked. So, you know, that was a, that was a whole other thing. Then we got a revenge was a weird magic card all the way around. Um John I mean, John John was soft to control, but we just didn't have it for a long time. That was the long and short of it. Like if there had been a viable control deck at the time, John wouldn't have been nearly as dominant as it was. Callblade, at first at least, could be beaten by the same thing Fairies did. A good, fast start from an aggressive deck that forced them to use Jace defensively, that forced them to deploy Gideon unprotected by other creatures. Like, you could just, you could get there. You could get a good, strong, fast, a good, fast start, beat him down, get him dead. Uh, Teamer Energy. A Teamer Energy had a lot of trouble beating control decks. Like a lot of trouble. You look at today, I don't, 
the the closest thing I can say to something that that, that occupies a spot as a flaw against the uh, Simic food ducks is the is Teamer Reclamation or any other deck that can go over the top of them that can play bigger and better and wilder than the Simic food deck. You know, your, your Bant Ramp deck comes to mind, where you can get to your Nissa just as faster, faster, and then you have Hydro Crisis, you have, uh, you have big dumb things, like the, the Field of the Dead deck was good against the Oko decks, because you went over the top of them. Uh, Teamer Reclamation is reasonable against the Oko decks, because you cut off some of their mana inefficiency, and you make Wicked Wolf into a Hill Giant. You, know, you don't have anything to fight. So it doesn't give them any value. It's just a four mana three three. So, you know, find something at the fundamental level maybe that acts as a flaw, acts as a weakness. And that's where you start for deck B. That's the second step. The second level, if you will. Identify deck B. The Usurper, which is the deck that maybe isn't as good against some of the other stuff in the format, but is really good against the deck you have to beat. You know, if a deck comprises half the field, being able to beat it's going to be a good place to be. Because if you can beat deck A with any sort of regularity, you can try to sideboard or, sideboard or just hope that you run into so much of deck A that it doesn't matter that you're not good against the other stuff. A really good example is the, uh, the Cauldron Familiar deck in Standard right now. That deck is really weird. It's like pretty good against the Simic Food decks because you have so much, so many black cards. And that makes the the main deck trend of cards like Noxious Grasp, Aethergust, not very good because they're literal blank pieces of cardboard against you. And Mystical Dispute becomes a three mana counter spell instead of a, two, a one mana. So for every non-blue card and you, you put in your deck, the Mystical Dispute gets a little bit worse against you. And then they provide this kind of weird little intrinsic long game thing where they're like, turn your thing into an elk. And you're like, no, man, I got this. Uh, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to turn it into food. And then I'm going to bring it back. Or I'm going to eat it and turn it into food. And then I'm going to use another ability to put it back in my hand. And then we're going to play it again. So you just keep going on that, that line. Another good example of this over the years is like the, the red-green artifact hate deck against Affinity. Affinity was so dominant with so much of the metagame that you could literally go in with no plan other than blow up artifacts and play a couple of creatures. And you could expect to do reasonably well at tournaments. I want you to think about that. That is an oppressor. When all, you, all your deck does is blow up artifacts and you have a chance. It's not a very good one. Because even if you blow up their stuff, they can still kill you. Because Affinity was like properly busted in half. But you get what I'm driving at. You get, you get the point I'm trying to drive home here, huh? Drive home in the car, homeward path, whatever. The, the main point we're trying to drive home here, like deck B is a weird place to be because you're a little bit worse against the field and even if you overcommit to playing the thing that's supposed to beat deck A, they can still just beat you because what they do is really, really good. But it can create this, especially at a more local level, playing at 
playing at your local store, if you can show people that you can create something that has a chance, you can start to progress your local metagame in different directions. You can start to get everybody else excited, enthusiastic, interested in brewing in standard again, or whatever format it may be. You know, modern, modern under the heel of KCI, modern under the heel of, uh, oh, what's a good example? I'm trying to think. Modern under the heel of Splinter Twin, modern under the heel of, well, yeah, whatever, right? Legacy under the heel of, of Miracles. If you can figure out something that beats it, even if it's not super regularly, just regularly enough, be able to do it, and when you do it, it looks convincing, that's enough to kind of inject, inject a little bit of a boost of life, a little shot of life into your uh, local metagame. And that leads us to level three, which is deck C. If deck B starts to take off, if there's a, a deck or two that that fairly reliably beats deck A at the expense of all its other matchups, be one of those other matchups. Be something that punishes stumbling. Be something that punishes your opponents for thinking that the only thing they have to worry about is deck A. And it, you know, it's it's these kinds of decks that tend to help. Ironically, it helps course correct and keep deck A as the dominant force that it, you know, that it's supposed to be. It's, it's, it's a crazy thing how metagaming works sometimes, especially when you've got a format like this. The, the general consensus is, hey, stop complaining and start brewing. Beat it. Get out there and beat it. But then you start doing that, and then people are like, oh, okay, if, if this is what beats Oko, then everybody's going to start playing it. So I need to play this, and then you play this deck that's bad against, play play this aggro deck that's bad against food, but it beats up on the, the team of Reclamation players, or it beats up on the, the Cauldron Familiar players. <laughs> it's just this weird little song and dance thing we get going on where everybody, it's, it's not quite rock, paper, scissors, in that, you know, Deck A doesn't always beat Deck B, doesn't always beat Deck C, doesn't always beat Deck A again, or doesn't always lose to Deck A again. But it creates this like weird little interplay between the decks that aren't Deck A. Where, you know, the, the sideboard slots start to matter a whole heck of a lot more. Where we're, where we're talking about you know, if you're playing deck B, you want to be able to beat the stuff that isn't deck A. So that's where your sideboard slots get dedicated. But then if those decks don't show up, maybe you try to make your deck A match up a little bit better. Maybe you try to, you know, you next level sideboard for the deck A sideboard that beats you. You know, uh, John was really, was notorious about this one where they would sideboard sometimes a fourth color because, you know, we had access to the shards of the Shards of Alara Trilands. So there were builds of John that sideboarded into Nicol Bolas Planeswalker or uh, Teamer Energy that sideboarded into uh, Nicol Bolas Dragon God that just went a little bit over the top of the decks that were trying to go over the top of Teamer. Like, it's, it's a strategy as old as time and it's one of those things that helps keep good decks on top is the idea that even when everything is going against you, you can find a way 
with within the configuration of your 75 to bring things back your way. And then the last thing I want to say about building decks in a metagame like this, again, as I, as I prefaced, it's going to be a slog. It's going to be miserable until you kind of get used to it, until you get the hang of it, until you figure out what the games are about. The most important thing is to position yourself. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, reading a tweet <clears throat> as I get ready to do the ending segment. The, the most important thing you can do is position yourself in such a way to... I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Positioning yourself in a way to outplay the person, not the deck. You know, going rogue has its benefits sometimes because your opponent often just won't know what you're up to. And that's a way to tease out some percentage points, especially at the local level where we don't have to worry about things like open deck lists or many, many, many rounds in a row where your opponent gets to see all of, opponents can see all of what you're doing if they're finishing their rounds early. You know, you can just catch somebody blindsided and have a good couple of weeks. And then you can move on to something else or, you know, try to get yourself prepared for the next thing. Maybe, maybe get into another deck. So it's going to feel like an uphill climb. It's going to feel like a slog. It's going to feel rough. But you can position yourself to beat the player. Because at the end of the day, that's what you're trying to do. You're not... Beating the deck doesn't prove anything. It doesn't get you anything. If you don't beat the player. If you don't win the game that's in front of you. And that's, that's all I've got on the subject. Again... Identify the levels of the format. Identify what's dominating. Can we can we build a you know put together a version that beats the mirror? If you know if it's a, something like Teamer Energy where the price is not a super big deal. God, I miss that format. Just a little aside, but you know, find you know figure out what it is that's doing the oppressing, and if you can join in. If you can't. See if there's something you can build that at the expense of other matchups beats the oppressor. Because especially like if you're playing on arena, 50% of my games easily have been against Simic food or Salty food or Bant food or four color food or whatever. Easily 50% of my games. And I don't play a ton of arena but between, between my arena testing and then the, the number of streams I watch and helping Andrew do uh, arena testing, like, there's so many food decks out there. If 50% of the format is playing something, having a plan for that thing gives you a good chance in every other round. And then if what you're doing is reasonably powerful, you know, you can still just outplay the person across from you. And then if those other decks start to chip in, start to make a dent, and people aren't respecting the stuff that got invalidated by deck A in the first place, show them why it had to be invalidated. You know, be the reason they have to go back to playing Simic Food. Be the reason they have to go back to playing Teamer Energy. Be the reason they have to go back to playing uh, uh, Fairies or, be you know, whatever. 
Remind them what it is that they're doing. Remind them what this format could be about if we could deal with this oppressor. <laughs> and last but not least, keep your head up. Play smart, play say, you know, play smart, play methodically, and put yourself in a position to win the games in front of you. Even if it feels like there's no chance their cards are too powerful, there's always a chance if you're playing your cards right. So don't sabotage what might be a winnable game with going on tilt and being tired of seeing this matchup. Recognize that it's going to happen a lot. Put yourself in a position to win the matchup. And that's all I've got this week, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I hope uh, I hope this brought something to you that you can you can use going forward. Again, I hate to say it, but we are in a format where we're we're being oppressed by a card and a deck that's too powerful. I can't remember who it was that tweeted it, but they said at the uh, Mythic Championship, if you are not registering the following cards at four copies, you are not trying hard enough. And it was. Gilded Goose, Oko, Once Upon a Time, uh, Nissa, and Wicked Wolf. It's the best deck. And it's the best deck by a lot. You know, Grand Prix Lyon. We saw the blue-white control deck come through and, you know, show that it had some legs against it. But you are warping so hard to try to beat it. We're, we're playing main deck Noxious Grasps and Mystical Disputes and Aether Gusts. I mean, what more can you do to try, I guess is my question. And then a lot of those, those cards have carryover like splash effects into some of the other decks that are viable. So building in an oppressive format, is a, it's a slog, it's a, it's a chore. It sometimes feels like it makes magic on fun, but it's still an exercise in improving as a player. So as much as it pains me to do, I'm going to do it because it's going to help me in the long run. It's going to make me more comfortable when these kinds of situations arise. So <clears throat> that's all I got. I hope everybody enjoyed. And let's talk about where you can find me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My name is at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. My name is Adam Spain. You can find me in the Facebook group for the show, the Homeward Pathfinders. It's open invite. Just send a request. One of our admins will look you over and approve or deny. Um, if you're a patron of the show, you have access to the Patron Pathfinders Discord channel. I uh, hadn't been super active, but, you know, we're trying. We're having conversations every now and then. Uh if you want to join in the conversation with the entire network, head over to the Constructed Criticism Discord. Uh, just ask for a link from myself, Spencer, or basically anybody else remotely affiliated with the network. We'd love to have you in their conversations going on all the time. There's the uh, Arena Discord server tournament going on, sponsored by Oasis Games, that's getting ready to happen. I cannot... I, I cannot push hard enough to get a lot of people involved with this, make it a big, a big success so that we can keep doing them. And again, don't forget to check out the content on constrictedcriticism.com. It's all fantastic. Uh, just do it. I mean, what else can I say? Do the thing. 
And with that all out of the way, let's dive back into my favorite segment every single week. I'm a, fa- I'm a husband. I'm a father. I like making bad, 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 bad puns, bad wordplay jokes. I do it all the time on the clock at work. I've made many, a, many a jaw, a, many a tooth, a jaw ache from clenching t- gritting teeth. I love me some dad jokes, so it only made sense to do hashtag MTG dad jokes and read them aloud for everybody to enjoy. Uh, first one I have is from Warren Smith, who said top 32 in a 174 player MTGO standard PTQ with Rakdos Snackrifice. I don't love gutter bones, and I think I'd switch back to Cavalier and Knight over Rankle Theater was great versus control matchups. Would recommend. I got hung up on the name, Snackrifice, with, with, with the Witch's Oven Cauldron familiar thing. Come on, that is gold. That is fantastic. Uh, next up, uh, MTG Arena announced that Oko Thief of Crowns is now banned in Brawl. Hopefully that's a, a precursor to what we're going to see in Standard, but I digress. Oko Thief of Crowns is now banned in Brawl, and Gavin Varhe says, Dearly Departed. And you know how dearly is spelled. D-E-E-R-L-Y. Dearly Departed. Yes. Here for it. And last but not least, oh, come on. Open correctly, you. Uh, Mason had a, apparently had a bad experience on uh, MTGO playing Pioneer. So don't try to veil this card, friends. It will not end well, and the card has transgressed the mind. Uh, for those of you who didn't play during Battle for Zendikar Standard, one in a black, sorcery, devoid. This card has no color. Target player reveals his or her hand. You choose a card from it with converted mana cost three or greater and exile that card. Why would you not want to try to veil this card? Uh, Trey, Trey McLarnon says it will be devoid of results. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. So again, thanks everybody for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you want to get your best MTG dad jokes involved, hashtag them, at me, whatever you got to do. Send them to me. I want to read them. I want to laugh at them. I love them. And that's all I've got this week. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed. We'll be back. I don't know when for writing cards with cards. I got to figure that. I got to figure that whole situation out. Uh, Recording schedule wise so that I can get some light in the car. (laughs) flashlight wasn't cutting it and uh it's it's dark going to work and dark coming home from work now so i didn't figure anybody wanted to see a big black blob as i talked for 30 minutes so uh but we will be back at the very least next thursday for another episode of the homeward path until then take it easy have fun and don't let yourself stay oppressed for long cheers folks